Welcome to Inside Economics. I'm Mark Sandy. Thanks for joining this week. Uh, we've got a real group here today. Uh, we're missing Chris. Chris Dorides, the Deputy Chief Economist. He's, uh, he's on sabbatical, isn't he, Ryan? What's, what's up with him? Where is he? Is he going to make it back for next week? No, he'll be back next week. But have you noticed that our ratings have gone up substantially since Chris <laughs> I, has been on vacation? Oh, really? I, no, how do I'm you know kidding. that? No, oh, I'm you're kidding. only kidding. I wish. Oh, I thought you had me going there for a second. Uh, yeah, I should have kept it going because he's probably going to listen to this on the plane. <laughs> Coming back kinda, from Italy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we've missed him, uh, but it'll be good to have him back next week. But uh, uh, we are in good shape. We've got a few of our colleagues joining us. In fact, this is this podcast is a little bit of an experiment because we've got a pretty full house here. In addition to Ryan, who's the uh, director of real-time economics, who uh, you all know quite well, uh, we've got uh, Jesse Rogers. Jesse uh, uh, is well. Je- Jesse is like a Renaissance man. He does like almost. You like you speak like ten languages, don't you? Yeah, uh, three or four. Uh, Spanish, Portuguese, and a little bit of Arabic. Is that why you said three or four? Yeah. Yeah. So depending, like, if you count the three words I know in Arabic. <laughs> <laughs> the family heirloom, we've lost it over the generations. Uh, it, um, the, my mom's a native speaker, but, you know, just didn't get passed down. Oh, is that right? I didn't know that. Uh, what, what is her nationality? Where is she from? She's American. Um, oh, but, but she's Arab. grandparents, yeah, were from Syria. Oh, from Syria. Oh, okay. Very cool. And you are critical to all the work we do in uh, Latin America. Um, in fact, we were thinking about buying a Brazilian company. Was it Brazilian? I think it was Brazilian. Yeah. And uh, you, you actually, I remember uh, I asked you to go down and run that business. And uh, you said with some intrepidation, after some real uh, deep thought, yep, you were ready to go. And then, of course, the deal didn't happen. So uh, you were so bummed out because you were, you were all set to go. Where was it exactly? I can't remember. Sao Paulo? Or Sao Paulo, yeah. Um, Sao Paulo. We do have an yeah, office there. Yeah. yeah. It's going to be a we bit of a different do. thing, though. Yeah. So, so, Jesse, tell us a little bit about your background. How did you find your way to Moody's Analytics? Sure. Um, my background's in public policy and journalism. I cut my teeth actually uh, living in Mexico City and working um, at a small uh, research uh, institute and think tank uh, there. I was there for three years, came back for my master's, um, and um, I don't know, almost by accident, a recruiter kind of called me up towards the end um and uh asked me one thing he said you know would you be prepared to move to westchester i'm thinking it was westchester new york i said yes so no i kind of set no. the whole thing in, in motion oh, yeah no. yeah that was the first thing he asked me so um well, yeah westchester pa is a lot nicer than westchester well i shouldn't say that you know yeah, I'm, like I'm comfortable i'm in philadelphia it's, it's, now it's but i i miss going yeah. to the office yeah but uh, how long have you been with uh, us at Moody's Analytics now? It's going to be seven years. Uh, wow. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Well, and uh, I, I, should, I should have said right up top that uh, after we get through some of the numbers like we typically do, and we're going to play our, our game and everyone's going to play, we're going to talk about global supply chains. And so, uh, Jesse, I think you're on board to chat about um, 
copper and other commodity prices. Uh, and of course, you know, a lot of that's produced in Latin America. And so it all kind of fits. Uh, so you're, uh, you're ready to talk about copper? Yeah, Dr. Copper, looking forward to it. The, the answer is yes. Yeah, you That's are ready. Mark's favorite yeah. indicator. Oh, I'm, I'm yeah. It's my favorite indicator. We'll, we'll come back to that. Although More I, than I ready. forgot to look at the price before I came on, but I'm sure Jesse knows the price. 4.3. Okay, and we also have, what is it? 4.3. Kind of $4.30 a pound. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Still very high. Okay. We also have Todd Metcalf. Todd, um, Todd, how long have you been with us? Not seven years. It's been more like a, three and a half. So I was going to say three, four. How about that? Yeah. Very good. And you are uh, uh, critical to all our housing analysis. In fact, we've been going back and forth recently on uh, house price modeling uh, at the metro area level. And we seem to be you know, getting that together. Uh, a lot of good work there. Uh, and um, uh, you're here to chat about, because we are talking about global supply chains. Obviously, there's been a lot of disruption to supply chains for building materials. Lumber has been the kind of the poster child for supply chain issues. And so uh, I know you've been watching that very carefully. So it's good to have you aboard. And did you come to us right from your PhD? And were you because you got your PhD in Syracuse, you were just telling me, right? Did you come uh, to us directly? No, I, um, I worked as an economist uh, at Towson University. Um, they have a little think tank um, that they do regional economics there. And so I worked there first. Um, and then Evan Andrews was in the same PhD program as I was. And he's one the one colleagues. Who, mm -hmm. Yeah. He's the one right. who got me into Moody's. Yeah. You can't be too familiar on this podcast. Like you're talking to me, but you're also talking right. to the world. So, you know, like they're going, who the hell is Evan Andrews? Uh, yeah. So, uh, just, you know, great guy, by the way, he's a great guy, but, uh, <laughs> uh, and, so you went from Syracuse, got your PhD. Actually, Syracuse has a really good public policy. Uh, uh, yes. is, is that where you were You're in the public policy area? So I was actually in a multidisciplinary program. Um, so basically, it was, uh, I was an applied economist. Um, mm. But all of my professors or all of my committee members were actually public administration professors. Yeah. Um, yeah, generally good. economists in the public administration program. Yeah, really, really good uh, group of folks there. Uh, well, uh, it's good to have you here. And then finally, uh, Tim Way. Tim, um, uh, he's uh, our chip guy. He's been following the chip industry, you know, carefully for uh, some time. And obviously, that's also a kind of a poster child for global supply chain issues. It's really messed up the vehicle industry, which is uh, really been a real problem here. So good to have you here, Tim. Yeah, thanks, Mark. Good to be here. Yeah. And, you know, I like to tease Tim because he got his PhD in Minnesota. And when I was uh, back at school, they were all about real business cycles. Did anything ever come out of that whole thought process around business, real business cycles? Do you think it's, it's had an impact on, pe on uh, people's thinking? I think to some degree, yeah, I think it's influenced yeah. sort of um, a lot of the modern DSGE modeling that, that we see coming out of central banks and, and academic institutions nowadays. But, but to me, it's just, you know, it's yet another kind of sort of um, way to think about the world, right? And, and it's, I think, come into some kind of acceptance, right? I'm, I'm sure Todd will agree that Syracuse also teaches real business cycle theory at some point during its macro curriculum. So. Well, you guys are both from 
schools that got it wrong. So what, what can I say? <laughs> well, Penn also teaches RVC stuff, Mark. So they do. You know, when did that happen? They do. Oh yeah, they do. Absolutely. I mean, like they've hired a lot of Minnesota guys. So, oh. so, you know, I mean, I think if you go back there, I think you'll see that RVC constitutes a huge chunk of their macro curriculum. I'm only um, joking. Yeah. As you know, Tim, I tease you all the time. I give you a lot yeah. of grief. Yeah, but you, yeah, you no. went from Minnesota to where, where you where, you didn't come to us directly from Minnesota, did you? No, no that's right. No, no. So I've I've been through the ringer in in some ways, you know, because I, I I'm originally from Canada, but um, but I as you said, I went to to school in Minnesota for my PhD. I I went to Cambridge after that. I was a fellow at the University of Cambridge in the UK for three years, um, and I I worked in consulting um, after Cambridge. So so that's actually how I. Uh, how I got to Moody's was, was through consulting. Well, so, great to have you and great. And so uh, you can see we, this is a little bit of a Brady bunch thing going on here. We've got uh, five of us. So this is a little bit different than what we've had uh, previously on the podcast. So a little bit of an experiment, but it's uh, good to do this experiment with you guys. So uh, welcome aboard. And as uh, the listener knows, uh, we uh, first, before we dive into the topic, which is going to be, be again uh, global supply chains. Uh, we uh, talk about the statistics uh, and play a little bit of game here. So, of a game here. So, I'm going to uh, just so that you get a sense of it. We're going to start with Ryan, and of course, Ryan Ryan is a maven at this. He, you know, he's really really good at this. So, Ryan, what's your uh, statistic for the week? All right, it is minus one point five percent. Minus 1.5%. This is something uh, on everyone's mind. And it's one, it has been one of the big contributors to fluctuations recently. It, fluctuations what? Recently. What'd you say? Over the oh, last few months. Fluctuations in what? It, it just, uh, I'm, I'm not going to give it away. Oh, that gives it away? <laughs> yeah, that gives it away. It's like a, <laughs> Damn. I thought I got him. Oh, yeah. You guys have any idea what minus one point? And this is a Reese. This is a statistic that came out this past week. Tuesday. There's another hint. Oh, geez. Uh, 8.30 a.m. 8.30. Everything comes out. Well, not everything comes out at 8.30 a.m. Uh, well, CPI came out Tuesday morning. And minus 1.5%. I, guys, do you see how I do this? This is called deductive reasoning. Uh, isn't it? called deductive reasoning yeah yeah it's called deductive mm -hmm. reasoning jesse would know and uh it's probably the the decline in uh used vehicle prices in the month i'm impressed very good oh baby ding ding ding, ding 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 hey we need to get a bell on inside <laughs> economics a bell like a bell. i can ring it yeah. in fact i need to get the bell i need to get the bell <laughs> Uh, Anyone really, talks, you can just ring the bell. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I will have to say, though, I'm not sure I would have gotten it unless you told me Tuesday. Uh, I would have. Yeah, because a lot of stuff came out this week. But yeah, used a lot car of prices, stuff came out. Yeah. Used car hey, prices this, have been driving the CPI up hot like, over the last few months. It's been adding a lot. And now it's subtracted in uh, August. Yeah. Uh, well, tell us about the CPI report in general. I mean, that was, I thought that was a pretty important report, uh, but I'll let you kind of lead the way on that. Uh, so why don't you fill us in on that one? Yeah, so August was like the first glimpse of inflationary pressures beginning to moderate. The CPI rose less than you know, what the consensus anticipated, 
And if you strip out the volatile food and energy components, the CPI only rose uh, one-tenth of a percent in August. And that's a lot weaker than what we've seen over the last several months. And a good chunk of that is because used car prices fell. Uh, a lot of the reopening components of the CPI, so uh, used uh, rental car prices, lodging away from home, uh, they also moderated. Airfares, they plunged. That could be Delta as well uh, in August. So we're getting a little relief on the inflation front. Yeah, it feels it feels like inflation has peaked. You know, it's rolled over. Mm -hmm. uh, I think uh, overall CPI, consumer price index inflation peaked in June, I think, but mm -hmm. on a year-over-year -year basis, 5.5%. Still elevated, obviously, because of the base effects, but it feels like we're now, and given that 0.1% increase, very modest increase in core CPI, excluding food and energy, which is what economists generally look at to gauge where the inflation rate is headed in the near term, suggests that uh, we've peaked on inflation. So this, the idea or the view that in this, this spurt in inflation, this spike in inflation is temporary or transitory, as the Federal Reserve uh, might say, uh, that looks right. That looks like what's happening here. Mm -hmm. Would you concur with that? Yeah, yeah you I would think, agree. Yeah, next month, so for the September data, it could be a lot of noise in there because of some hurricane effects that drove up energy prices. Uh, but you know, looking past the hurricane effects, I think inflation is definitely beginning to moderate. Yeah, okay. Um, okay, uh, so should I give you my statistic or should we go on to the guys? Uh, guys, do you have, you like uh, Jesse, do you have a, an indicator, a statistic? Yeah, yes, I Is do, it, Mark. You, you do? Oh, okay. Yeah. You have a good one. It's a good one. Yeah, I did, believe so. Did Ryan uh, give this to you or did you come on uh, on this on your own? Uh, this is mine. I, I may have workshopped it a little bit <laughs> with okay. Ryan, so maybe we should right. count him out for this round. All right. Um, mm -hmm. But Jesse's um, stressed about this, Mark. He, I know you know, he is. I can feel he it. Was, Look, his hands are folded across his chest. I know. All, he's really nervous about this. He's sweating yeah. a little bit. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Don't don't disappoint yeah. Jesse. I, actually, I can see he can cleaned up his room. We're all on Zoom too, so uh, yeah. I see he cleaned up your room there a little bit. You know, it's, it's, I, I can tell he's ready. Okay, fire away, right. Jesse. What's the number? What's right. your statistic? Um, it's fifteen percent, and one clue is it's it's year to date. Fifteen percent on the nose. Fifteen percent, you said. Yeah. Cumulative, roughly. Cumulative year to date, and this is a statistic that came out this week or relatively recently. So it's recently. a weekly average. Um, so it, it's um, it's it's a weekly average of okay. weekly average. Whoa, that. Uh, uh, this is not the one you ran by me. Yeah, this is a bit different. <laughs> I was thinking the other one I ran by Ryan. Yeah. yeah. Ryan, do you have any any? Can you? Is it related to global supply chains in some way? Or yes, yes, it is. It is. Is it a price? Is it? Yeah, it is a price. Oh, it's a price. Okay. Yeah. Again, you see how I do this, guys? Deductive reasoning. Deductive reasoning. Uh, it's a price. Fifteen percent. It's up fifteen percent. So far, Since the this start year. of this year, yeah, and it's a weekly average, and I'm guessing, given you know where you're coming from, it's a, a price for a commodity. Would that be fair? Yeah, yeah, that is okay. Is uh, it copper? Copper. Can it copper. Can it? Yeah, it is copper. So, oh, here we go. Copper. copper prices. Okay, we got them pinned. I thought that Great. would be too easy. That's why I said it can't be copper. That's like 
Yeah. Okay. Copper prices. Up Chris only talks about prices. housing. Jesse's only going to talk about copper. Oh, okay. Yeah. Right. You guys have uh, typecast me already. You know, yeah, I'm not right. on for 10 minutes and I'm typecasting. <laughs> Good point. Well, we do that on Inside Economics. We can figure you out pretty quickly, you know, right away. Uh, but that was a good one. That was very good. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll come back to copper prices in, in just a few minutes. Sure. Okay. Let's go to Tim. Tim, what's your? Do you have a statistic, Tim? Yeah, I do. Um, it's seventy-five percent. Seventy-five percent. Okay. And don't tell me it's chip prices year to date. Oh, it's not chip prices. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> that would be that would a been, topic. <laughs> yeah, that would have, too, that would have been too too, uh, too easy. Okay, so all right, so uh, it, it has to do with global supply chains. Yes, it does. It also has to do with chips. And but mm. it's not a price. It's not a price. Is it capacity utilization? Uh, getting there, getting there. Um, it, it close, yeah, close. Not not quite, yeah. Hold it. Seventy-five percent sounds low for capacity utilization. Oh, I was going to. Th- I was going to build on your train of deductive reasoning and start oh, I see. chipping Got away it. at industry specific. <laughs> Okay, but so it's, it's related, related to capacity utilization. Yes, it's related to capacity, but it's more geographic in nature. Okay, um, industrial production. Uh, production, no. yes, but production where of what? Uh, oh, oh, now we're getting. Can I take a guess? Uh, now he's really. Yeah, really we're very close. Us. We're very close. Sure, okay. go ahead. Well, okay, I'd say probably Asia. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So what is on Asia? Do I have to sp- the, tell you what the province it's in? You know? <laughs> <laughs> no, you're, but, but, yeah, but you're spot on, Mark. So it's 75% of global chip production is done in, in East Asia in particular. Oh, okay. Oh, well, that's, okay. That's, a re- that's a good statistic. Yeah. yeah Say it's, that again. 75% of global, of global chip production. And that's all chips, you know, that's basic chips, chips, high tech you know, sophisticated chips, the whole shoot and match. That's absolutely right. Yep. So all basically 75% of total chip manufacturing around the world. Okay. I got one for you. This is for Tim. What percent of global chip manufacturing is in Taiwan? Ah, so for high end chips? No, I said total, total chips. Total, total. So so I would say um, in terms of um, fab production, it's 54% um, is done by, TSMC alone, so that accounts for the vast majority. Taiwan has TM, now. Who's that for the so, listener? Yeah, so it's Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing yeah, Company, right? The world's yep. largest chip maker. Um, but to dig a little bit deeper into that, uh, in terms of high end, right? Mark, you mentioned high end chips, um, and these are the chips that go into phones, computers. Ninety two percent is done by TSMC, so done done by Taiwan, and that's that, that's incredible. That's impressive that he. Well, the number is impressive, but the way you kind of answered that, my challenge was impressive. I had no idea what the answer was, but you did. So very good. Uh, That's great. uh, (laughs) I'm bothered to knowing things about Taiwan. I'm glad that you you think I'm doing a good job. (laughs) No, I I thought that, what, Ryan, wasn't that impressive? That was impressive. Yeah. Todd's not impressed, but he never is impressed. No. Yeah. Yeah. I just don't really want to follow that, but it doesn't look like I have a choice. <laughs> <Is that right? laughs> okay. Uh, that, that, hey, Tim, that was, that was damn good. Very good. Uh, Todd, um, uh, you're up. Uh, what's your statistic? 1,076.6. 1,076.6. All right. In is a, this a price? 
it's price related. So building it is materials. Dollars. Building materials. It is building materials related. The peak is in lumber prices. Yeah, is lumber back up to one thousand? No, because that's below no, that no, no. now. Yeah, it's closer to five hundred right now. Yeah, it involves the peak in lumber prices. Oh, the peak. Oh, so this isn't a recent price. This is a, a historical price. It's both. It's a difference. Oh, oh we're going oh, with differences. It's, is it? It's the decline. Oh. I know what it is. Yeah. I know what it is. I know what it is. It is the decline in lumber prices from its peak to the current price. You see how Mark does this? You see how Mark does this? I get him 95% of the way there, and then he jumps in. That's not true. Is it? Is it really true? I mean, maybe Watch. it could be. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> that, that's, that may be true. Not intentional, though. You see, I, I didn't know that I was doing that, but it's possible. Possible, I could be doing that. Well, if we had that bell, we could settle it, you know, ring it in as soon as no, the well, indicator gets in. I'm sorry I even mentioned that because now Ryan's going to go get the bell and he's going to ring it when he wants to ring it. Right. I'm going to get, the, I'm getting the bell. I'm getting right, the bell. You can get the bell. I'm getting the bell. Yeah, about Ryan, you got a bullhorn. Uh, oh, that's right. Hey, well, that was good. That was good, Todd. That was a good one. Uh, uh, should I give you my statistic? Yep. Okay. Uh, and of course, I'm not. I am, it's kind of related to global supply chains, kind of, sort of. I don't want to lead you too far down that road, but uh, it's a statistic that has come out this week. Actually, I'll say it came out very recently, and uh, it, it goes to uh, a reason for optimism about future economic growth. Ready? 1.25. 1.25. And uh, Ryan, you know. This is a reason for optimism? Yeah, reason for optimism about economic growth going forward. Yeah, indeed. But it, you know, it highlights you know uh, you know what's going on with global supply chains, and why it, you know it has been a drag on economic growth. But you know, uh, this are you going uh, inventory to sales ratio? You got it. Way to go, Ryan. That is right. That is the inventory mm-hmm. to sales ratio. So you take all the inventories. That's the numerator. You take all the sales, uh, and that's the denominator. And the ratio it gives you a sense of, you know, how lean inventories are. One point two five is about as low as that has ever been. This is for the month of July. It was actually uh, lower one month back in the very uh, kind of the wake of the financial crisis when we had that big drawdown in inventory. We got to one point two four for one month. But uh, that quickly came back. Uh, so we're at 1.25. And interestingly enough, the, the uh, Census Department, which is the uh, source of the data, breaks that down lots of different ways. But uh, manufacturing, retail, and uh, for retailers, you know, inventories and manufacturers, uh, inventory to sales at retailers, inventory to sales at wholesalers. And the really the thing that is just incredible is the inventory to sales ratio at retailers mm-hmm. it's it you know it has plunged since the pandemic it was you know kind of headed down over time just in time inventory management that kind of thing has been bringing that inventory to sell ratio down for retailers and also you know online use and in increase in amazon and warehousing much more uh, inventories have been going into warehousing but that is really collapsed and uh, you know suggest uh, you know the reason for optimism here is because it's so low, 
you know, as things start to kind of normalize and we kind of uh, iron out the global supply chain issues, and we will, we'll talk about that, uh, businesses are going to have to ramp up uh, production to rebuild inventory. Inventories are so low that we're going to get a real boost to economic growth, at least for two or three or maybe even four quarters, you know, maybe all of 2022, uh, because uh, uh, we're going to have to see those inventories rebuilt. Um, anything else to add on the inventory sales? I know you look at all these statistics, Ryan. So any other insight on the IS ratios or anything on inventories? Yeah, so if you take all the data that came out this week, uh, you know, retail sales, the inflation numbers, the inventory data, our GDP model, our daily high-frequency GDP model ticked up from 3.9% at an annualized rate to 4.1%. But to your point, Inventories are Ryan, just just to, to, to yeah. explain that, and I know you talk about it regularly on the podcast, yeah. but that's our tracking estimate for the uh, third quarter, the current quarter GDP growth rate. So we take all right. these statistics that come out on a daily basis. We have a model. You have a model that you run to translate that into what does it mean for GDP growth, real GDP, the value of all the things that we produce in the current quarter. And you're saying, given the data we got this week, it went from a expected growth rate tracking estimate of 3.9%, which is where we were last week, to 4.1 this week. Correct. Yeah. But okay. if you strip out inventories. Oh, yeah. Barely growing. No, Less really? Than 1%. Inventory is going to be a big boost to the third quarter oh. GDP. And it's not like we're adding inventory, are we? Or, 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 or is it just that we're not cutting inventory as much? Exactly. We're not cutting as yeah. much. Wow. Are we, are we going to actually add to inventory in the quarter, though, according to our modeling? Not yet. The model doesn't have a, a positive. It just has less of a decline. Less negative. Yeah, less Correct. negative. Yeah. Hey, how would you characterize, I've got my own view, but I'm curious in, in your perspective. Um, how would you characterize the message from this week's uh, raft of data, you know, in the context of Delta and the uh, uh, clear negative in, impact that Delta virus and the wave of infections have had on economic growth? I mean, the economy... It feels like it's been dinged meaningfully, mm -hmm. you know, probably since late June, uh, certainly in July coming into August. But, you know, are, are you, how do you, how do you, how do you feel about the data this past week and what it says about how the economy is navigating the uh, fallout from Delta? I don't feel good about it. Uh, oh, really? I mean, if you okay. look at retail sales, they were strong in August, in August, but there was massive down downward revisions to July. So the decline in July retail sales is now a lot larger than we previously thought. So the spending data, you know, when you net it all out August and July, it's not great. If you look at all the uh, alternative high frequency data that we have, uh, and you and Dante, our colleague and Matt, uh, in that CNN back to normal index, that's rolled over. So I'm, I'm just not feeling good. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, because my take was, I mean, I, you know, uh, I've been nervous about Delta and it has lowered our forecast for growth in the current quarter Q3 and for the year. I mean, I, I, you know, if you look at uh, our forecast for real, real GDP for calendar year 2021, we had been, if you go back two or three months ago, almost to 7% for the year. We're, we're now back down to about six. Not, not all of that is is Delta, but I'd say at least half a point of the downward revision in our growth expectations for this year is because of the uh, uh, the effect of Delta. But I, it feels like, like it felt like this week, the data 
just everything kind of felt a little bit better to me. I mean, retail sales were surprisingly strong. Yeah, they downward revisions for July, but you know, it was still, you know, if if, if it rose, and, so it was good. Yeah. And, you know, just small things like, you know, the Philly Fed index, right, which maybe many people don't follow. This is an index constructed by the Philadelphia, uh, Philadelphia Federal Reserve of Act Manufacturing Activity in Philly. And this index has been around for, since the beginning of time because, you know, uh, uh, Philly's been, uh, Fed's been doing this, constructing this for a long time. It, it actually rose. And that's, a you know, in the month of August from July. Um what else? Uh, you know, consumer sentiment seems to have stabilized a little bit. Yeah, but it's um, still really depressed. Yeah. It's down okay. where we were during the teeth of the pandemic. What's interesting is if you look at the measures of business confidence, so the NFIB survey, the regional Fed manufacturing surveys, their general business conditions index is actually like a question about confidence. Uh, yeah. And our weekly business confidence survey, they're, they're all holding up fine. It's the consumer measures that have just gotten yeah. crushed by the Delta variant. Okay, so you you came out of this week no more feeling no better about the impact of Delta than you did last week. No, I think yeah, I'm feeling a little bit more. I'm a little bit more concerned because more the nervous. numbers, the okay. number of schools that are closing or going back to virtual learning increased uh, relative to last okay. week, and it's now a thousand schools schools across 35 states, and that's going to be problematic for uh, labor supply over the next couple of months. Say that again. How many schools? Uh, a thousand over 35 states. So it's spread have, out. It's not regionally concentrated. Uh -huh. That have gone back to online learning? Correct. Because of the infection. Delta variant. Oh. Yep. Wow. Okay. All right. So oh, we're going to likely boy. see that effect in the September employment numbers. Right. Okay. Yeah. I was actually feeling a little bit better. Now, now I'm not. I'm not so sure. Uh, you're right about our back to normal index. That index is, you know, takes all of these statistics and brings it together into uh, back to normal, what percent of normal, what percent of, of what we were prior to the pandemic in terms of economic activity. And that's now back down below 90%. So it says we're, you know, had gotten as high as almost 94, 95 before Delta, we were 94% of normal, 94% of pre-pandemic, but now we're back down to 90. So, uh, okay. And I guess the one last thing I'd say on Delta is, I guess my pessimism is being driven more by the alternative high-frequency data, the daily, you know, uh, open table or seated dinners through open table, number of people passing through TSA checkpoints. That's capturing what's going on right now. The data that came out this week was showing what happened in August. So I think the September data, when it starts to roll in, will be uh, on the softer side. Okay. All right. So I think we're looking at two different snapshots. I'm yeah. looking at today. And you're looking at the weekly data or the monthly data for August. Yeah, good point. I, and I guess the other reason I was a little more upbeat, and I guess, uh, well, curious what do you, what you think here too is, it does feel like the the, the virus is that the wave, the Delta wave, is kind of rolling over. That there's fewer infections, people are masking up more, and there's more vaccinations, and of course, more people are getting sick and developing immunity. So it feels like that wave is starting to abate, which. Uh, we we had been anticipating now, but uh, that that would be some reason for optimism. No, no, I agree with you. Yeah, the seven day moving average in uh, daily confirmed cases is is dropping, uh, but it's still elevated. It's still above a hundred thousand per day. So it, this too will end, you know, just like past waves. But I just think the economic costs of the Delta wave are going to be a little bit more than what we 
had previously anticipated. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, we're anticipating it, right? Because uh, we're, I, we do have stronger growth in the fourth quarter of this year in, in significant part to the expectation that this uh, wave will abate over the next uh, few weeks, certainly over the next couple of months. Yeah. I'm confident um, that I, I think your baseline forecast is spot on. You get a big pickup and growth final three months of this year. I'm just worried about, yeah. you know, in the yeah. next few weeks. Okay. All right. Well, we'll certainly be talking about this next week on the podcast as well. So, okay, let's um, let's turn to global supply chains. It's certainly an issue uh, that's come to the fore again as the Delta virus has re-intensified and, and caused, um, and by the way, is, this is not just a U.S. phenomenon. This is a global phenomenon. We've seen Delta create havoc everywhere. And it's scrambled, already scrambled uh, global supply chains to a significant degree. And the, the supply chain issue is a, is a, is a really important one uh, from, a, from a macroeconomic perspective and a, just a parochial personal uh, uh, perspective. feels like you can't get anything these days without having to wait for it. My son ordered a couch for his new apartment probably two months ago. It arrived uh, yesterday. So, you know, not easy to get stuff. Uh, and, uh, you know, part of that is just the surge in demand. You know, demand has been very strong you know, uh, certainly uh, throughout the pandemic for goods, you know, th for things that uh, travel through the global supply chains. But, uh, you know, the, the, the chains have been uh, se severely disrupted by, by the pandemic. You know, people getting sick and Malaysian chip plants of chip plants closed to messing with ports. You know, we saw the Chinese uh, have to shut down various terminals and various major ports because, of the discovery of COVID, uh, uh, you know, to uh, uh, obviously uh, a corollary to the global supply chain issues or the labor supply issues, you know, because people are sick or taking care of sick people or fearful of getting sick, you know, they haven't been going to work and that exacerbates the global supply chain issues. Uh, and all of this has, you know, come together and is now creating, you know, very significant disruptors. So far, most of the economic damage has been around uh, prices, you know, inflation has spiked. So we've seen prices jump for almost everything, you know, all kinds of products uh, have, have jumped because of the supply chain issues. But it also seems to be, and here's where it gets a little more worrisome, uh, demand destruction, right? You can see this, it feels like it's happening to some degree in the vehicle industry, right? Because uh, the chip plants closed, uh, vehicle manufacturers who need all those chips can't produce uh, as many vehicles, so they can't sell as many vehicles, and uh, they probably will lose those sales, you know, to some degree. The, there's going to be some pent-up demand. We'll get some of those back. We might get, might not get all those back. So I don't think that's happening in a lot of industries yet, but certainly, you know, uh, something to watch, certainly uh, another concern. Uh, that, that's how I would frame the discussion around this. And so the, the uh, conversation I'd like to have is, you know, we're going to dig deep into different parts of the supply chain issues, try to understand, you know, what exactly is causing these problems? You know, what will it take to solve them? And when do we think they will be solved? Or, you know, that's a tough one to answer. We, no one know for, knows for sure, because a lot depends on the pandemic and how it's going to play out. But, you know, in our baseline outlook and our forecast for the economy, where we think it's headed, what are we assuming about this? <clears throat> Does that sound like a reasonable conversation, guys? Sounds yeah. good. Sounds good. Okay. On board. You're yeah, on board. 
Okay. Well, who wants to go first? Uh, I, I'll, no, I'm not even going to ask. I'm going to pick. Uh, I'm going to pick Tim because uh, unless you're on Zoom, or unless you're on YouTube watching this, we're Zooming this thing. Uh, Tim looks like Superman. Uh, he's got a bright blue. What would you call that? It almost looks like it's not even a shirt. It looks like it looks like he's going to go scuba diving or something. I don't know. It's right? a sweatshirt. It's a sweatshirt. It a sweatshirt? I, don't, I don't want to sound okay. like I, I'm naked, Mark. Like, it's a regular sweatshirt. No, it's not a regular. That's not a regular sweatshirt. Are you, are you guys agree with me? There's something going on with that sweatshirt. Don't sweatshirts have to have hoods? No, not in my uh, Not in Canada. <laughs> not in Canada. Okay. They, they, they've got the park. Tim has a secret life that he's hiding from us. Yeah. As soon as we wrap. There's definitely an he's... S somewhere over there. Yeah, yeah moonlighting at Superman <laughs> when I'm not working Moody's. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, let's begin with you, Tim, and, and what's going on in the chip industry. Give us a little bit of history. How did we get into this mess that we're in in the chip industry? Yeah, so so actually, Mark, what you and Ryan were just talking about, I think in terms of, of Delta is, is particularly pertinent to the chip industry, um, because I think before the Delta variant um, sort of really came to the fore, I think, you know, we were sort of of this mindset where, you know, the chip industry kind of they were hampered by hampered in the sense that there was a shortage because of the pandemic, um, because demand just surged. Um, while supply is relatively constrained, right? So I think a bit of background kind of taking a step back. I mean, chips, there are many different types of chips. So there's um, sort of, you alluded to kind of high-end chips earlier, Mark. So these are sort of seven nanometer or less type chips. Um, these are the chips that are used in phones. So those types of chips, basically, you only need a handful of them, right? To make some of the, the major electronic gadgets that you see. Um, phones, you know, gaming consoles, laptop computers versus some of the more mature chips, right? So these are the chips that are using cars, um, you know, sort of much older technology, 15 years or older. Um, you need a lot more of these chips, um, thousands of them to make a single car, right? So early on in the pandemic, I think, you know, what we saw was, you know, we saw kind of severe sort of um, shortage for, for the car industry, but maybe not so much for sort of some of the more high-end chips. Um, and that's in part because, uh, you know, there's a lot more incentive for, for chip makers to make these high-end chips. Margins for those um, chips are a lot higher. So, so to give you another statistic, so nearly 50%, 49% of, of TSMC's revenues um, come from phones alone, right? So making chips for phones alone. So that's nearly half versus only 4% from automakers, right? So clearly there's a huge, and then you know, 30, another 30% comes from, from advanced computing. So that's cloud computing, artificial intelligence, um, all these sort of high-end chips, right? So the high-end chips basically make up about 80% um, of their revenue book, um, which makes sense, right? Um, given that, you know, these are kind of really advanced technologies, very few manufacturers are able to produce them. Um, and so, you know, they have, you know, pretty strong monopoly power over these, um, over these chips. So now kind of fast forward to the Delta um, variant and kind of what it's doing to, to, to Asia. Um, which is where I, I kind of started off my, my, uh, my spiel. Um, so 75% of, of, of global chip production is done in Asia. And Asia, unfortunately, is bearing the brunt of, or at least sort of really experiencing some of its um, record highs in terms of uh, COVID-19 cases because of the Delta variant, um, particular affecting, you know, Japan, Korea, Malaysia, Thailand, um, as well as Vietnam. So these are five big countries 
um, that are to some degree involved in chip production, um, whether it's in assembly or integration um, or testing. So these are all essential in getting chips out the door um, to the point where even Toyota, so Toyota is kind of like the, the poster child basically for, for car makers in terms of supply chain management. They've always done a very good job of that because they have a, a long history of creating, you know, speaking of inventories, you mentioned that earlier as well. They have sufficient buffer inventory and they have a very, a very well-known um, tracking system where they, they basically have an online um, real-time uh, tracking system that, that sort of looks at over 6,800 parts, you know, what the lead times are and how much inventory they have um, so that they can manage um, all those changes. And even Toyota has had to, to curtail production significantly. Um, they've just raised it to 400,000 less vehicles this month um, because of these disruptions that are going on in specific plant closures in Asia that we hadn't really seen before the Delta variant. So, so, so I think, you know what? Go please ahead, go sorry. ahead. No, no, go ahead, Tim. Finish up. I was just going to end by saying, I think uh, in terms of high level, right, I think what Delta has really done is it's sort of exacerbated a lot of the existing shortages that are already out there, right, by creating yet another sort of it's almost like a natural disaster of sorts, right? So, so the chip industry, they're always affected by natural disasters. They're affected by earthquakes. They're affected by droughts. These are very significant. If there's a drought in Taiwan, the whole, whole world suffers because Taiwan basically produces a vast amount, right? More than half of basically all chips that are manufactured. Um, you know, but, but Delta basically is something that, you know, even TSMC can't plan for, right? So TSMC has business continuity plans that account for droughts, that account for earthquakes. What does it do, right? But it can't bring account. up droughts. Can I say just so because people don't know, I mean, uh, producing chips is pretty water intensive, right? I mean, very, so very much so. So you have a drought. You can't you don't have water. You can't produce basically. So. You can't produce at all. Yeah, you can't produce at all. So so but they, they kind of I think with droughts and, and earthquakes to some degree, you can kind of plan around that. Right. So Toyota's planned around earthquakes. That's actually the genesis of of their sort of. Um, world-class tracking system was because they had this 2011 Fukushima earthquake that devastated them. And so since then, they've basically tried to keep a very tight hold on how much inventory they have for each, every single individual part um, that goes into their car models. Um, but even they can't plan around, you know, factory closures in, in Thailand and Vietnam, right? That's just so, sort of like, like, a, yes. like a natural disaster almost. That's yeah, so so uh, just to summarize... We, we saw a surge in demand uh, because everyone's at home and they're not traveling, going to restaurants, so they're buying stuff and all that stuff. And of course, remote work, you know, that means you're buying computers and telecommunications equipment and Game Boys and, and just all kinds of things. And they all, every single thing these days has a chip in it of one form or another, of course, vehicles as well. And so that drove up demand. And then you have uh, all it sounds like what you're saying is the chip industry on the supply side already was pretty fragile, kind of vulnerable to anything that could go wrong. Fukushima nuclear meltdown in Japan to Taiwanese droughts to whatever. And now you throw in Delta, particularly Delta, because that this is the first time that Southeast Asia got crushed and there's a lot of chip production. I keep coming back to Malaysia because there you have plants that actually have closed because everyone's sick. They literally are sick and can't work. And so the uh, confluence of all that 
uh, is uh, this very severe shortage of chips and uh, the spiking prices. Is that, is that, that's it. That's, that's what's going on. That's, yeah, that's absolutely right. I think the only thing I will add to that, Mark, is that I think, you know, the, the, the listener may appreciate how difficult it is for new production to come online. I think, you know, typical lead times for existing capacity, right? So this is machines that are already in place, you know, production lines that are already in place. Typical lead times right now are in excess of 26 weeks. That's half a year, right? And that's wait, wait, basically- wait, that's, that's, that's not, is that 26 weeks not to build a new fab chip? Plant. No, no, no. So this, yeah. is, this is for existing fabs, right? So for existing yeah. fabs, existing okay. production lines, right? Just right. to get one chip from the manufacturer out, to the do- out the door to the end user. It's, it's taking 20, it's over six months, right? That yeah. is remarkable. And so if you want to build, if you want to build new plants or, or fabs, as they call it, um, so TSMC has been working on this for a while in Arizona, and that, that fab isn't going to come online until 2024, right? Samsung has the same plans to create new fabs in, in, in the Southern US. They've filed um, papers with Texas and with a couple other states. Um, and that their plant's not going to come online until 2023. Um, so it's just near impossible, right, to create instantaneous supply, right? The only no. thing you can do is try to basically, you know, talking about um, Ryan's point earlier about capacity utilization, right, to basically wrap that up to 100 and over if you can, right, um, and, and basically work overtime to, to make up for what, what you currently have and, and what, what's currently missing. The other issue with that is that you can't really repurpose these chips, right? So I kind of alluded to it a little bit earlier in terms of, there is a big distinction between high-end and low-end chips. Um, and that's not a superficial distinction. I mean, that's really, you know, you have very specific machines, right? So, so I wrote a paper earlier this year, you know, that kind of delved a little bit deeper into global foundries, one of the actual U.S. manufacturers of chips, I mean, kind of what they do in their plants, right? So they have basically specific lithographic machines that can sort of essentially laser into um, silicon wafers, you know, these specific chip designs. Right, so you can't just anyhow, you know, switch from one chip design to the other, you know, just because the auto industry needs it more, and and maybe you know you're getting less demand from 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 the gaming console makers. You can't just switch it over to auto. Got it doesn't it. quite work that way. So so the supply constraints are real, right? These are actual tangible supply constraints, um, and they're only going to be made worse if the factories close down. Okay, I, I, uh, one thing you did not mention is a cause is the U.S. Chinese tensions and and uh, the, the 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 fallout from that Huawei has that played a, you know any kind of role here in in terms of what's going on? Oh, absolutely, it's played a very big role. So so Huawei is kind of more historical in, in nature, I would say. Um, but I think some of the things that happened after that, um, you know, pe- a lot of companies have basically adopted the same strategy. So. So taking a step back, right? So what happened sort of earlier on in the Trump administration, as they were basically imposing this boycott, um, you know, not, not allowing essentially Chinese companies to buy from the US. And of course, there was a lot of bickering back and forth and sort of reciprocity in that, in that, um, in that manner. What a lot of the Chinese um, telecom and electronic companies did was they actually stockpiled a lot of chips, right? So the they knew that this was coming, right? There was clearly a lot of discussion around it. It took months, as is always the case with government, for it to pass. And so they actually stockpiled a lot of chips. And what, what a lot of companies are doing now, and this is something that Toyota's always done in the past, is that they've always just had huge buffer inventory. Um, but what a lot of companies are doing now is they're basically stockpiling chips as much as they can, right? And it's not just automakers. 
it's a lot of you mentioned gaming consoles earlier. I don't know about Game Boys anymore, Mark, but PlayStation. Yeah, sorry 5. about that. I'm, uh, that's my that's my son. My son was a Game Boy. Yeah. Is there, is there, is there such a thing left? Are there any more Game Boys? Yeah. So so the counterpart nowadays is um, PlayStation Fives, right? So these are kind of oh, I'm not 5, that right? young. Yeah. But yeah, but but I mean, yeah. those are really in high demand. Oh, right? that's why he's got the blue sweatshirt. That's his gaming <laughs> shirt. He's like, he's gonna come on. A... He's gonna go on to PlayStation Five, and you know, he's like, he's a gamer. That's what's going. He looks like a gamer. You know, Mark, we, we need. I, I need to make some YouTube income, you know, because I'm clearly not getting paid enough at Moody's. So I, 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 I got to make low. myself presentable. Low, low. I'm, not, I'm just low. kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, but I think. You know, but I think, you know, with, with PlayStation 5, right? So it's the same thing. So, so they basically had so much demand, far more, in fact, than they had forecasted, which kind of brings to, to light the, the importance of the work that we do. And so they've had several months, basically, where they had demand where we're not, you know, it was just not getting met because they just had no chips. So what they've done is they've more than doubled their normal order, right? So this is basically what people are doing in anticipation, right, of what these geopolitical tensions can do. So, yeah. so I think... I think this is yeah, the U.S.-China tensions. They still matter, you know, particularly for Taiwan, right? I mean, because that's such a huge, you know, it's such a a huge kind of manufacturing hub. Um, but but yeah, I would say that it's yeah. more maybe yeah. sort of what happened after, um, um, and the yeah. lessons that we learned from that. You know, there's a cla- it's classic human behavior about around hoarding, right? As soon as there's a whiff that you're going to have trouble getting something, people hoard, and then you have a problem. Like I can remember at a, co- a Moody's conference, you know, uh, everyone's getting breakfast, and someone says, "Oh, I think we're running out of coffee." Then, of course, everyone starts <laughs> pouring all the coffee. We and we run out of coffee, you know, very you know rapidly. It was like a run on coffee. So I'm sure this sounds like what's happening. The, the toilet paper shortage during the pandemic. To- toilet paper. And by the way, I am fully stocked. My wife is like all over that. You know, there's never going to be, a, if you've got anybody wants, of course, I might charge you a price for it, but you know, there, I've got toilet paper. Hey, uh, so two quick things, Tim. Um, first, uh, what was the first thing? Uh, oh, uh, first thing is, so uh how is this going to get resolved? Is it are are we seeing any progress here in resolving these supply chain issues? I mean, what are what's generally things happen on the demand side? You see higher prices, so people kind of adjust and try to you know switch to something else. Although you just articulated that's not so easy in the chip industry. You see, then you see more investment. You know, people uh, existing plants figure out new ways to go from twenty six weeks, let's say, to twenty twenty one weeks to kind of speed things up. Are you observing any of that happening? Is that is that happening? Both, both. Yeah, you're you're right on. So I think um, in terms of prices, right? So TSMC is going to raise prices by as much as twenty percent for some of its um, high, you know, some of its chips. Actually, more on the lower end of of of, of things um, because those have traditionally been cheaper. Um, and and you're also seeing like China, in fact, like basically fine three of its chip makers almost half a million dollars um, for what it's called abnormal price practices. Um, basically trying to keep these prices um, low, artificially low. Uh, and then also, I think we're going to see a lot of pass-through, right? I think we're going to see, you know, laptop prices go up. We've already seen um, vehicle prices go up significantly. Average vehicle prices in August were up $8,200, which is, which is crazy, um, you know, from a couple of years ago. So, so I think the price mechanism is certainly at work. I think in terms of inventories and in terms of adjustments, um, a lot of companies have been doing that. Tesla, in fact, is famous for trying to, 
to cut out the middleman. So what they've tried to do is they've tried to have um, sort of a more direct relationship with the actual chip makers. This is very difficult, obviously, because you know a lot of you know a lot of production processes are are kind of they're kind of you, you kind of inherit them, right? So you 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 know you you kind of already know oh this car part I'm gonna get from this guy, you know th this you know um, you know electronic you know unit I'm gonna get from this other guy, and they're trying to do you know sort of they're trying to cut that out so that they have more direct access, but. And that's not something that that you know all 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 consumers and suppliers can do, right? So, so there's some there's some movement to try to to try to you know make it more efficient. Um, but I think in the short run, it's going to be very difficult um, to to kind of really get around it. Um, I think the hope really is that the Delta gets more controlled, um, you know, and and we're seeing that in some of these places, right? So in Japan, I think numbers are coming down. Um, you know, in fact, even in, even Malaysia has now come down from all time highs. So so we are seeing some progress there. And, and obviously, if that you know, works out, then then, you know, um, we'll be closer yeah. back to normal. OK, well, uh, we could we could have had a podcast just on the chip industry. I feel like I haven't really been able to ask all my questions. But I, I do want to save your forecast, though, because I know, I you know, as I said, I'd like to know. What, uh, in terms of timing, when you think some of these things will start to iron themselves out to a point where it's not you know, uh, disruptive to the economy, to the vehicle industry or any other industry? But I'll, we'll come back to that, uh, you know, at the end. Okay, so let's uh, let's pivot, and uh, we have a choice. We can either go with Jesse and talk about copper commodity prices, or we can go with Todd and uh, lumber and building material prices. Where, where, anybody want to go first, or do I need to? Should I pick? Your podcast, my podcast. It's actually Ryan. What do you think? Let's go. Let's go, with Todd. Todd. Okay, Todd. Other, so Todd, everyone's always that? talking about lumber prices. So I know, and actually, that could be oh. a good case study here for the future of mm -hmm. you know how this is all going to play out. So I don't know, Todd. I mean, it seems to me we do a lot of work with folks in the housing, multifamily, commercial real estate industries, and you know, whomever I talk to, uh, you know, they're talking about shortages of something else that matters to them. Like, for example, I was at a, a function in Southern California and I was talking to this, uh, this uh, multifamily developer, very successful developer, mostly in the West in California. And uh, he was telling me, and he builds a lot of affordable rental, you know, multifamily, which is obviously incredibly short supply. Rents are screamingly higher you know, across the country, particularly for affordable rental, uh, uh, for uh, rental for, uh, for out of necessity. And he was telling, and he does a lot, a lot of so-called LIHTC, you know, rental. This is a LIHTC is a low-income housing tax credit, you know, that is a subsidy to uh, get builders to build more housing for lower income households at lower uh, rent points. And he was telling me he's not, he's got projects, but he can't actually, and he won't actually begin them because he doesn't know when he's going to get the delivery uh, of appliances. So, you know, uh, toaster ovens, I guess, I don't know, uh, that's, dishwashers. That's, that's Tim's uh, issue again, because a lot of them are chips. Oh, chips, chips, right. It all goes back to Tim, damn Tim. Because, you, know. you know, my oven now is smart. So. <laughs> yeah, there you so, go. So yeah, um, and that that's part of the um, the issue. But then not only are there the chip uh, uh, issues with that part, there's also the fact that you know 
all the ships are stuck in port waiting to get unloaded because of, of the backup and, and kind of the global supply chains overall. Um, so that, that's part of it. Um, it's kind of been a, a rolling a rolling calamity of, of what is going to be in shortage for um, uh, the, the house building industry. Um, and that's actually where it's, it's a little hard to say in some regards, what was the impact of lumber? Um, Cause I would actually argue that uh, I'm going to spoil the punchline already uh, from a lumber standpoint, things have kind of, I don't want to say they've come completely to normal because we're still, uh, I think up 61.6%. I have that statistic handily nearby um, from Good two point. years ago, price-wise, um, from 916-2019. So uh, lumber prices are still elevated to where they were two years ago, but they're actually down from where they were last year. Um, and as I mentioned, uh, with that 1000 uh $76 at the beginning with my stat, uh, we're actually down 60, almost 65% um, from the peak in May. So lumber prices have, have definitely come down pretty drastically. Uh, the appliances have, have always been an issue and, and still are an issue. Um, it, you know, that, that's kind of similar to the, the couch and, and furnishing. Of course, that's not really the home builder's issue. That's the, the home buyer's issues. But um, but yeah, that's still very much there. Um, and Got from it. the end, yeah. yeah. I was going to say, uh, so going back, I guess, uh, we'll just pick on lumber a little bit because that seemed to be the first uh, kind of major product that, at least in my mind, came to the fore with regard to global supply chain issues. It was, it was, it was well over a year ago when we started to see uh, labor, uh, excuse me, lumber shortages. And uh, as you say, things seem to be kind of normalized. They're not normal. Uh, we're not back to normal. <laughs> we got a ways to go there, but they have been normalizing. So if you go back to the beginning, when the supply issues began to manifest, that, that too was in part increase in demand, right? The housing market uh, navigated the pandemic incredibly well for lots of different reasons we've, we've talked about on previous podcasts, obviously low record, low mortgage rates being first among the reasons why, but we saw this demographic shift in, yeah. And shift in preferences. Yeah, surgeon, yeah. Shift in preferences. Cause people, you know, weren't traveling. So they, you know, said I want, and they wanted to get out of the big cities where they were renting and out into the suburbs. So we saw a lot of home improvement because people were sitting on their back decks like me and, you know, investing in their, their back deck in their homes. And then uh, on the supply side of the market, explain what happened there. Why, 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 did, why, why wasn't the industry able to kind of ramp things up to meet that increase in demand? So uh, of course the industry uh, at first really expected that just that, that demand was going to uh, just fall out. And so the industry actually shut down um, and they weren't really producing uh, uh the lumber that was needed. Um, and only- so you say they were looking at our forecast. Our forecast was saying this industry is going to have a lot of, housing is going to have a lot of problems. So they shut down and say, oh, uh, Moody's is saying, hey, you know, this is going to be a problem. Uh, that actually, isn't that your forecast, Todd? For the record, that was right when I got transferred. And so I'm going to, I'm just going to say that, that was I'm more thinking of about your it, forecast. forecast. It's still your forecast. <laughs> it's Todd's forecast. Jeez, Louise. 
So the you're saying your bum forecast caused the entire housing industry, <laughs> mm-hmm. lumber industry to kind of shut down, close, turn off all the lights. And all of a sudden they go, oh my gosh, there's like, people are knocking on our door saying, where's the lumber? Is that what it's, you're saying? It's all my fault. Oh, I knew. <laughs> so, so yes, the lumber industry basically, I mean, they, they had the, the shutdowns, like everyone, when the economy shut down, everyone thought that the, um, you know, the sky was falling and everything went down. And so no one really knew what to expect. Um, I don't think you would have said in February of, of uh, what, 2020, that that would have been the case. Um, and so basically they, they shut down production. And, and actually overall in the end, um, production was actually up in 2020 uh, for lumber for the entire year uh, when, compared when, to, to be specific when you say lumber you mean you mean sawmills right we're talking about sawmills here so timber yeah. is is you grow a tree and that goes to the sawmill uh, timber's been flat um, sawmills are the bottleneck and so sawmills are where all of the money is being made um, yeah. and so okay. the sawmills had a, had a great year last year uh, okay. But the home builders, not so much. Well, the home builders had a good year too. Um, well, let's so, fast forward. So fast forward. Okay, so now we have these severe shortages. Uh, what happened? So, how is it that uh, things are getting resolved? So, what's the dynamics in the market that caused things to start normalizing? So, one after kind of realizing their their error and prices started increasing, uh, lumber mills did um, basically start going as as full out capacity wise as they could. Um, there were some things that kind of slowed them down. Generally, they're rural. Uh, some of them had problems finding uh, labor, um, kind of the common issue, um, but. They were basically running at as full capacity as they could, as quickly as they could, um, and have been more or less running at full capacity since. Um, in Canada, just in the last month, some of the sawmills have actually started uh, uh, running below full capacity. Oh, is that um, right? Oh, really? Yeah, in, in at least British Columbia, uh, their break-even point is, is higher than the American break-even point. So some uh, sawmills in British Columbia have actually, I don't want to say idled production, but they've lowered production. Got it. Got it. I guess the Canadian tariff, the U.S. tariffs on Canadian lumber might be one reason for that. Their, I their think that's break-even price points higher. I think that's part of it. Um, it's oh. also just the with Canada, the different provinces have different like fee structures for oh. um, cutting. Right. Because basically the whole tariff thing is is that in Canada, uh, most of the land where the trees are cut is is owned by the government, whereas in the United States, most of it's owned by uh, private companies or is privately owned. And so the argument is is that the Canadian suppliers are are overly uh, subsidized by the government. Um, and I think it just depends on what province you're in as to kind of what those prices look like. Okay. Okay. So, so uh, the sawmills kind of turned back the lights on a little bit of delay because of labor supply and other issues, but they kind of ironed that out. So now where they're producing flat out, I guess demand is moderated a little bit too in response to the higher prices. So you've seen people kind of balk at, you know, the building their back deck out another uh, five yards because of 
incredibly expensive to do. Home builders have actually kind of pulled it in a little bit too because of the high uh, lumber and other building material costs. So there's been a demand side response, a supply rise response. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but the other uh, aspect of this, which is uh, interesting and has played out in other markets as well, there's some sp speculation going on here too, right? I mean, lumber is a, in a sense, a financial market. And because uh, there was uh, all these shortages, you saw people kind of speculate in lumber and that drove up the the price. And of course, once it became clear that the supply de demand dynamics were shifting in the other direction, all that speculative demand has gotten wrung out and that's caused prices to come in. Is that is that a fair characterization of what's going on or do, did I get that wrong? I, ha I have seen the speculation. It's, it's, hard to, it's hard to tease that out versus like there was hoarding. Um, because a, a lot of home builders are, you know, if, if you can buy it, you just say, yes, I want it. Um, partly because there were delays in even getting it, um, you know, getting lumber. And so there was some hoarding, I think, going on in the industry also. Um, and I think it's kind of hard to tease out exactly what that is. Well, I'm making um, a different point. There might be some hoarding. That's like you're saying physical hoarding, right? Physical hoarding of, I'm, right. I'm, I'm, I'm purchasing asking about futures the financial you know, can, kind of financial. Ryan, you're shaking your head up and down. Did yeah, I'm with you on this one. I think there was yeah. definitely some some speculation. I mean, we could do some work around right. it, but to yeah. tease out the the exact effect. But I think there was some clear evidence of speculation. And that, and that is that's one of the reasons why prices rose so sharply. We kind of went parabolic there for a while, and that's why they've come crashing back down. I, that, that, that's just. To be frank, there I are absolutely anecdotes but... about that. There are are absolutely anecdotes about that, but I haven't seen. I haven't seen kind of any smoking guns is exactly how much. Well, there never is. There well, never yeah. is with <laughs> investors. They're not going to leave a smoking gun, my friend. You know, you got <laughs> so to piece right. it all together. Yeah. Okay. And so, so uh, tell me pre-pandemic, what was uh, the kind of the benchmark lumber price? Uh, probably it would be roughly, I guess, the, the three to high 300s. Roughly 400. Three, f 400, what, what? And what is that for? Uh, What's the unit? I believe it is board feet. A thousand board feet. Um, yeah, a thousand board, board feet. feet. And then 1,000 board feet. And then what was the peak? The peak was uh, 1,670.5. Okay. When was that? Roughly speaking, when was that? That was May 7th of the show. May 7th. And what are we at, are today on, on price? Uh, we closed yesterday at 509, basically 594. Okay. So we're within spitting diff distance of pre-pandemic. We're not quite there yet, but we're spitting distance. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'd, I'd say, well, we're still up. I mean, about 60% from two years ago because it was like three, 367 two years okay. ago. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It feels like we're in spitting distance, but you're saying it's, you know, still pretty high. Yeah. And I that 590 you. is a right. little bit misleading because we had contract expiration yesterday. So we shifted from the September contract to November. So we, you look at late September when that we're still in that September contract, we we're closer yeah. to, we're below 500. We're below 500. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So we'll get back that, down there. We'll yeah. get back down there. So is that arc of pricing and the dynamic that generates that arc playing out across all building materials, uh, appliances or, or not? So, uh, no, um, basically the, the new kind of issues is, uh, so I think steel is up year to date, 80%. 
uh, building paper and so paper just for the listener, products. Todd's yeah. looking over at his screen because he, he want <laughs> uh-huh. he, he knows that I want precision down to the third significant digit. But don't worry about that, Todd. Yeah, broadly speaking, yeah. yeah. So I mean, basically, NAHB has has really laid out just National that years of home builders. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Sorry. Um, that basically everything is up uh, for their expenses. Um, asphalt, uh, public water, plastic pipe for water, um, fertilizer for the lawns, uh, veneer. So the other wood products are up. And actually, they've been a little more sticky. So um, the uh, plywood, um, are, they're all related to that, that upper lumber price. But um, some of the hardwoods and other things, they still have some of their own dynamics. They, they kind of move together, uh, but they will kind of be um, they're idiosyncratic. A little, yeah. Now, the other they, thing is... is but, okay, yeah. go ahead. Sorry. Well, I was just going to say is that the, even with the lumber prices going down so much, the contractors aren't, pay, aren't paying that futures price. They're still paying a, a higher price than what we're saying because on the way mm. down, the prices are sticky because the, the wholesalers don't want to sell at a loss. And mm. so they hold it back a little bit more. And so... It, there's still some elevated prices even for, for most home builders. Um, plus right. when you buy it versus when you have it today. So, so the dynamics that are in play in the lumber industry are playing out in other building materials, but in varying degrees depends on the material. Yeah. Well, and I mean, the other thing is, is I would say that I don't, you're not getting the same spikes. You're, you're, I mean, yeah. steel is one where obviously that just, industry-wide the the home building or well uh home building or, or you know multifamily probably more for steel um they're they're small part because industry-wide or you know uh worldwide we use a lot of steel for for other part for other things like cars and whatnot so yeah right. um, okay all right well i'm gonna come back to your forecast on uh, we're gonna use lumber as the benchmark you know uh, when we're gonna normalize uh so we, but Mark- uh before we go on, I have yeah. a policy question for you. Why for don't who? you think that for you? For me, Mark? Yes, Mark Zandy. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Any other Marks here? <laughs> I mean, no, I thought maybe Todd. Go ahead, fire uh, away. I'm good at policy talking China too. But I was curious, why didn't the Biden administration end the tariff on Canadian software lumber? Well, they certainly, there was a lot of pressure on them to do that, right? Uh, I, you know, I, I, I just think that. Um, that has all other kinds of storylines and complications and political fallout. And I don't know, it's a pretty complicated mess. So you might've created more havoc than it was worth, you know, and at the end of the day, the market seems to have adjusted pretty quickly, even without the tariffs. I mean, I'm no fan of the tariffs. Um, You know, I would have gone there immediately, but you know, given all the political issues involved, I'm sure and many things that I don't understand and none of us may understand, you know, because there's a lot of other dynamics here. Uh, uh, they didn't do it, but, uh, but that's a good, that's a good question. Good question. So um, let me have a crack at it if you don't mind. Yeah, sure. Far away. So my alternate stat for today was going to be 18.32%. And that's actually the recommended tariff from the um, uh, uh, Department of Commerce for what the the lumber price should go to 
on Canadian lumber. It's currently at 8.99%, which was lowered by the Trump administration at the beginning of the year from 20.2%, which had been what they did and what the Trump administration put on in 2017. So the, the lumber tr uh, trade issue has been going on since Reagan. Um, there's been five, I believe, yeah, five major lumber deals. The last one I think ended, I wanna say 2015. Um, and then there was like a, year, a grace period of like a year where it kind of stuck. Um, there's kind of broader trade negotiation um, issues, I think, probably also at stake here where it's probably preferable to have a, a, a broader trade agreement um, on this than to, to just kind of keep fighting it up or down. Yep. Yeah. That sounds right to me. There's a lot of a lot of moving parts here. Uh, okay, so uh, I think we need to move on. The podcast is is getting a little long in the tooth here. Uh, and uh, Jesse, you probably should have volunteered to go uh, after Tim, uh, but uh, so you're going to get a little short shrifted here. All but, right. Uh, sorry about that. I apologize. That's okay. But I, I'm, I'll be you know, brief. It's, it's actually you know well past lunchtime, so here in the East Coast, so yeah. uh, you know we're, we're going to have to move a little long here and i still have to get forecasts from you guys on you know how this is all going to play out so copper um uh what's going on in the copper market it, it, as ryan noted early on that's been my one of my favorite statistics for gauging the strength of the global economy and you know uh, uh the potential for inflationary pressure is developing what's going on in the copper market why it, it provide a little context you know where sure. has, where's where's copper prices typically where is it now what does it mean and why are we here all right um well i kind of elbowed my way on here because we don't really have a shortage in global copper markets right now <laughs> but i are I you do have. <laughs> yeah, I just kind of pushed How my way in. On this podcast, oh my god! You know, through the back door. You know, did a little extra EV analysis for Ryan this week. You know, a little favoritism. So anyway, to be brief, the message I have to bring, I think, is a really important one, and it's that this balance is really fragile, and it's something that we need to pay attention to. So the statistic I chose, which was fifteen percent you know, copper prices up year to date, uh, that compares to just 10% for the broader index of, you know, commodities, whether you look at Bloomberg's index or the CRB, um, you know, metals, ag, oil, the whole basket. Copper's kind of in this different class um, because supply has been sh uh, very tight over the past year um, uh, related to various uh, difficulties in bringing on new production in South America. Okay, so uh, bringing on new, so it, it's not, uh, it's not that the industry has been disrupted by the pandemic or other events. I mean, I, clearly demand is up, right? Because copper goes into lots of stuff too, just like you know uh, chips and and lumber. So demand is picked up, and of course the home building industry drives a lot of demand for copper, and. Uh, the supply side has just not been able to keep up with that, but it's not because of any pandemic related supply distortions. Is, is that right? Yeah. I mean, in, in part, it's the classic commodity cycle that we were talking before, yeah. you know, periods of underinvestment followed by periods of high prices and the supply side catching up. 
And, you know, in comparison to lumber uh, or semiconductor fabs, like bringing new mines on is a multi-year process. Um, so we have a market that, you know, the way this plays out is, you know, there's been new investment this year. Um, we're going to have new investment in our big producers, which are Chile, uh, Peru, um, and to some extent, um, producers in Africa. But it's a delicate balance. Um, copper prices spiked. I think you guys talked about it when Chilean miners went on strike early in yeah. August. Um, and we're on an edge, really, where you know anything that happens in South America, whether it's labor-related, um, a lot of uh, you know just political turmoil right now, sort of any false step throws us, uh, you know, throws a wrench in global supply chains. A huge copper wrench that we're going to have a hard time. Uh, taking out. Yeah, I mean, now I remember why I wanted you on because um, it, it embedded in uh, what the mess that's been created by the pandemic to global supply chains, which is idiosyncratic, obviously, to the current period. This is, you know, a very unusual, obviously, but embedded in that is this kind of classic kind of cycle that exists in in uh, particularly commodity markets, agriculture and metals and uh, uh, even the energy markets, where what happens is uh, uh, demand picks up coming out of the recession. The supply side of these markets can't respond uh, quickly enough because the mines have been turned turned down or turned off, uh, you know, the oil platforms have been fallowed, you know, to get them back up and running takes a, a bit of time. And uh, in many cases, there's been underinvestment, you know, through the recession, the preceding recession. And uh, the result is you get these. Uh, and then, of course, you have the financial accelerator that I talked about in the context of lumber, where you have people kind of speculators jumping in and speculating on price. And so all that comes together and creates this kind of classic commodity cycle. But that that augurs well going forward, right? At least, in, at least if you're not a producer of commodities, but a consumer of commodities, because, you know, uh, demand starts to moderate because of the higher prices. And because of the higher prices, the supply side of these markets kick into high gear because they can make a boatload of money. And then you see these prices come back in. And so we would expect copper prices to kind of roll over uh, steel prices, ag prices, uh, energy prices, and, and kind of moderate as we move forward here. Is that kind of sort of roughly right? Yeah, on, on the nose, the risk is, and this is the original stat that I had uh, run by Ryan, um, the number is 40%. And that's the share of global copper production in South America, um, mm. mostly Chile and Peru, a little bit in Brazil. Um, and you know, just the pandemic has really amped up uh, underlying political turmoil in Latin America. You know, countries that are rewriting their constitution, uh, introducing um, new tax regimes for the mining industry. And our baseline is, you know, not a major shift, um, but we just don't know. There's a populist undercurrent across the region. Um, and, you know, this is the reason why, you know, I'm, I'm really concerned um, about copper markets moving forward. I mean, it's um, in our baseline, we're going to have demand and, and supply balance out. And like you said, moderation in prices, but there's certainly plenty of risk involved. Oh, uh, okay. So you're saying, uh, given the political instability throughout 
all of Latin America. And that's pretty obviously from Bolsonaro uh, in Brazil and, you know, pick your country. There's, you know, uh, uh, issues that that could be disruptive to investment that's necessary for the price moderation that we expect. It may not happen. And that, if it doesn't happen, it might be because of the, this political uncertainty. Exactly. Got it. Okay. All right. Okay. So uh, very informative, very useful. So let's end the conversation with, with a bit of a forecast. And I'll begin with you, Jesse, because we're on, on, on you. We have, we're at 4 buck 30 for, uh, 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 for a pound of, is it a pound? Yeah, it's a pound. pound yeah, dollars per pound. pound. Yeah, pound of copper. Yeah. I just got my units confused. And typically it's three bucks. That's what it is yeah. on average through the cycle. Uh, two bucks is pretty low. That's kind of recessionary where we yeah, were. Yeah, that was our pandemic the low. The uh, shutdowns on the pandemic. Yeah. Okay, so we're at four buck thirty. When do we get back to three bucks? Oof. Uh, in our forecast, not for some time. Um, we actually have prices trending higher over the next 10 years and implicit in that assumption. So not trending wait, higher. Wait, wait, we kind wait, of return wait, to. Wait, 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 wait. We're at four buck sure. thirty. Are we not going back to three dollars? No, we don't quite get there. We hit three four, three two in 2023, um, okay. and then we start to tip back up again. Okay. All right. Roughly yeah. speaking, we get back to three and when? Did you yeah, three. Uh, yeah, and the end of next year into 2023. Okay, so that that's the horizon I'm focused on here. You know, yeah. so. Because, you know, obviously longer run than, you know, there's the general yeah. rate of inflation and all kinds of stuff. But we get back to th roughly $3 or close to typical by, by mid-2023, did you say? Yeah, or even early in 2023. Er, so to, early yeah. 20, so 18 months yeah. from now, you're saying? Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, fair enough. Okay, that, that, that feels right to me. Okay, good. Um, it better be right because that's our forecast, so... Sounds good. Uh, all right. Very good. Uh, uh, we're working backwards here. Todd, lumber prices, that's been our poster child for all this. Uh, we were at $350, a thousand board, board feet, got to a peak of 1600. I think you said we're back now down to about 500, let's say, give or take, depending on the contract. When do we get back to 350, I don't think we're going to get back down there, uh, at least not anytime oh. soon. Um, but that's not to say that we're going to have a huge spike up, but uh, just demographics and home building. No, no, that's, no, no, that's no, have to no. Happen. You're doing the same no, thing Jesse is. I don't know. No, uh, I oh, want to know. I'm not explaining oh, it enough. Yeah. Over the next 12, 18, 24 months, are we going to be less than 500 bucks? And, and where is it going to be, you know, over the next uh, 12, 18, 24 months? Uh, I will say, so one, it's uh, about six, it's a little closer to 600. I would say probably closer to 700 over the next 12 months, just because of, of home building demand. Because we're so, we're so critically okay. short on, on new homes. As much as I know in, in inventory has creeped up on new homes, I think it's like six or seven months now, 6.8, I think we still need more, more housing. And so I don't think that we're going to see a, 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 a Even with a the dip. supply increases that are coming, because we know sawmill investment has picked up dramatically. We're going to see a lot of new yes. sawmills. You're saying that demand is going to keep up with that. And so prices are not going down from where they are today. Yes, because I, I think sawmills will, will idle a little bit even before. What about other building material prices? I mean, steel, aluminum, 
appliances. Do you feel the same way? Yeah, I mean, well, think about what else is competing with them. I mean, everything, like chips are going to go into uh, the appliances. So appliances aren't going to go down. Interesting. Steel, I mean, we need, demand is up for everything. So I would say, unless you think we're going to see all of a sudden people stop using less steel or you know start using yeah. less steel. Well, no, steel, I mean, the level of, uh, uh, of stuff we're buying is very, still very elevated. You know, it, it much higher than where you would have expected it to be based on pre-pandemic trends. So the answer is yes. I not at home building. Home building, I that's all different ball game. But right. retailing in general, I mean, stuff, goods, you know, what we retail sales, they're gonna, they're gonna. I don't know how they moderate. I don't think they, you know, fall off a cliff. But you know, they are gonna moderate. But right. interesting. That's an interesting. Ryan, do you buy that? What he's saying? No, I think they're gonna moderate. Yeah, they're gonna I mean, moderate. Particularly for other. Uh, commodity prices, construction costs, you know, if you look at the industrial production, so the output for these industries that have you know, these high prices right now, it's increasing very, very quickly. Capacity utilization is climbing. So I think the supply response may overshoot and that should put some downward pressure on, on prices. Okay. Oh, we, I, it feels like we had a bet here. You know, uh, we're going to take a, uh, all right, record this for history. We're going to have a bet. Uh, Ryan, what is the current lumber price, the benchmark price? Todd just said 600. Is it 500? Yeah, it was or 590 yesterday. 590. And that's the current contract? Uh, yes, November. Okay. Contract. I'll go with that. 600. So uh, 18 months from now, we're going to have Todd back. And what do you think the price is going to be, Todd? Quickly. 650. 650. Uh, uh, higher. Okay, very good. Ryan? I'll go five five I'll go four hundred. Write that down. <laughs> Write that down, baby. Jesse, you got, you recorded that in your ten languages. Yeah. Yeah. All right. All right, Tim, you're up, man. No wishy washy stuff, you know. And you know the, the horizon: eighteen, twelve, eighteen, twenty four months. It, and I, we don't really have a benchmark chip price, but I don't know. However, you want to characterize it. What is the world going to look like in the chip industry? Yeah, I'll say most optimistic scenario, um, second half of 2022 is the earliest that we see sort of, uh, you know, easing of the shortage um, for certain types of chips. Uh, and what, what, what that means is basically lead times coming down from, you know, 26 weeks and, and over to something more like 10 weeks, um, which it has been in the past. Um, but again, you know, I think, you know, we've, we've, spoken at length about sort of general trends, right? In terms of more and more appliances, as Todd mentioned, using chips, more and more electronic gadgets, you know, everything's becoming digitized, right? And, and as you said, Mark, at the top of the hour, right? I mean, it's digitization, right? I mean, this is kind of the way the world works now, right? I mean, so, so I, I don't really think demand is gonna fall at all. Um, it's gonna be a question of, you know, whether supply can meet that demand and whether, you know, sort of demand can make adjustments, right? Um, along the lines of what we mentioned earlier in terms of inventory management, in terms of making supply chains, uh, supply chains leaner, right? More efficient. Yeah. Um, but those things take time. So it's just, yeah. you know, and, okay. and, and that, that forecast is my most optimistic forecast. That's assuming no further Delta spikes, you know, no geopolitical tensions that would, Tim, you know. Sort Tim, of, Tim, we're, we're running long in the tooth here. I know, I know. Give me your, quickly, your baseline. What do you think? Not your most uh, optimistic. Yeah, I would, I would say baseline. If, I'm, if I was playing it safe, I would say 2023. 2023. Okay. Yeah. Okay. 
Very good. Uh, you know, uh, this is a fantastic conversation. I wish I could go on with each of you. You know, we should probably do a separate podcast. It, it, this is a long podcast, this one here, because I've, obviously we had a lot to say and we had a lot of people on. But uh, hopefully the listener uh, got a lot out of it. I certainly did. Uh, you know, I enjoyed it very much. And I'm going to put a quick end to it. But uh, uh, please, if you have other topics you'd like us to address, um, go to economy.com. Uh, inside economics and give us uh, your um, your uh, your suggestion. We we take that uh, to heart, and we always uh, appreciate any ratings that you provide to us. So, thank you for all this. I, I guess the, the takeaway for me is that uh, that this uh, 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 normalization in global supply chains, pricing and availability and inventory and all the things that uh, are impacted by the supply chain issues. Is a process, and it and it's going to take some time. It's it's not going to be tomorrow. It's not going to be next month. It's not going to even be next quarter. Uh, it obviously, depends on the product we're talking about. Each one is running on their own dynamic and has their own story. Uh, but it, this could be you know something that's going to play out at least over the next year, probably over the next two years, you know, something like that. In the case of some things, we're not, there's no going back here. You know, uh, prices are going up. So that, that's everyone shaking their heads, reasonably up and down. Okay. Yeah, uh, I agree. Todd doesn't agree. No, you do agree. Okay. All right. Sort of. Not really. Okay. Well, that that's great because we're, we're going to have, have you back in 18 months from now. We're going to see who wins that bet. Right, Ryan? <laughs> Ryan, Ryan never forgets a bet. Let me just no, say. I don't. He does not. Yeah. Mm -mm. Okay. I'm going to mark it down. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. Take care now. See you next week. Mm -hmm.